0: Welcome to episode 97 of the show. Every once in a while, my co host and I like to delve into more esoteric topics that still, of course, revolve around investing. And they're based on our current reading that we're doing at the time. This show is in that vein. So we hope you enjoy it. Also, we encourage you to stop by our Substack page if you're ever interested in looking at the charts and tables and any of the write ups or some of the other helpful links that we have available to you there. So without further ado, here we go. On August 25th, 1688, the famed privateer or pirate, depending on your perspective, Captain Henry Morgan, breathed his last. Morgan left behind a plantation and an estate on the island of Jamaica, valued at 5,263 British pounds. The value of his estate, if converted directly into today's dollars, is equal to 1,530,000. but that conversion fails to capture the purchasing power which the estate would have commanded in the late 17th century. To better grasp the purchasing power of Morgan's estate, consider the annual wages common in England in the year 1688. According to Appendix 1 of An Essay on the Present Distribution of Wealth in the United States by Charles B. Sparr, PhD, which cites the original work entitled The Political Conclusions of Gregory the King, the very highest strata of society, a temporal lord, earned about 2,800 per annum. Persons in the law earned 140 per year, and a typical shopkeeper earned a more modest 45 per year. Understood through the lens of 17th century annual wages, we see that Sir Henry Morgan. Could have sustained a lawyer's income for over 37 years on the value of his estate, or funded 116 years of living on a shopkeeper's wage. Taking that comparison one step further, consider that the average U.S. income in 2022 was $71,456 per year and that this sum multiplied by 116 years equals 8288896 Furthermore, Henry Morgan is thought to have been 52 or 53 years old at the time of his death, and while he wasn't a billionaire, a 52-year-old with over $8 million in assets still ranks in the top 99.5% of U.S. citizens by net worth. Admittedly, this is a roundabout way to assess the value of Morgan's estate, but it does serve to illustrate something of the fortune he'd amassed in a way that we can relate to today. Now consider for a moment Captain Morgan's near-opposite in terms of outcome. Captain William Kidd. Born in 1654, just 34 years prior to Morgan's death, the two had very similar starting points. Both British citizens, both privateers and sailors, and both operating in the Atlantic waters off of the Americas. The similarity of their background begins to diverge and diverge rapidly, however, following Captain Kidd's acceptance of a privateer commission in 1695 from King William III. Under this privateer commission, Captain Kidd set forth in the Adventure Galley, a modified merchant ship with 32 guns with a full license to hunt for pirates on behalf of the Crown. The Pirate Kid is an excellent book that fully details the trials and tribulations that followed that fateful day, but the crux of Kid's downfall centered on his decision to commandeer an Armenian merchant vessel operating under a French sea pass in the Indian Ocean. The Koida merchant ship was thought by Kid to be fair game, as the British government was at war with France at the time. However, the decision resulted in Kid being branded a pirate by the East India Company, and eventually the British government itself. Returning home from the Indian Ocean, Kidd stashed the Koydan merchant ship and its cargo off an island in the Caribbean before continuing on to New York, where he spent the next several months attempting to clear his name, only to be arrested, shipped to England, and eventually hung, his body remaining over the River Thames for two full years to serve as a warning to would-be pirates. Whether Kidd's actions did or did not warrant punishment is debatable, but it is clear from his writings and from the historical record that he did not consider himself a pirate, and he believed to the end that his name would be cleared of all charges. The biographies of Kidd and Morgan are fascinating, and countless lessons can be drawn from their story. But it is the way in which each man searched for his fortune that offers us the greatest insight into an investing principle which still applies today. Put simply, the lesson is to fish where the fish are. Consider first the fortune-hunting approach of Captain Morgan. Morgan secured a privateer's commission before setting sail on any venture. If a sailor attacks a ship or a town for plunder without a privateer's letter of marquee, then he is a pirate and a criminal and can never cross back over into civilized society. A pirate will most likely be hunted down and killed by the state if the perils of a pirate's life don't take him out first. On the other hand, a privateer is a pirate with a license, and to the extent he stays within the bounds of his license, and to the extent that the government honors its commitment to the privateer, then the sailor's plunder is viewed as a service to the state. Both Kidd and Morgan secured a privateer commission before setting sail, but Morgan's treasure-hunting method better enabled him to stay within the lines authorized by the Crown. Morgan did this by first understanding the motive of the Sovereign who issued his charter, and second by attacking only land-based targets. In the Atlantic waters off of 17th century America, the Spanish reigned supreme. Their maritime empire supported by a steady stream of New World gold that flowed from the Americas back to Madrid, Cromwell in England, could see that the British must secure a foothold in the Caribbean from which they could disrupt Spanish gold flows, if they were to maintain any hope of seeing their star rise among the empires of Europe. But he realized that he did not have the naval power to accomplish the task. The answer? Allow British privateers to do the English Navy's dirty work in the New World. If the scheme failed, no official English assets would have been lost in the effort, and if it succeeded then the privateers who paved the way for the English Navy could be brushed aside in favor of the more official trappings of empire. As it turns out, Cromwell's plan panned out more or less as he'd hoped, resulting in a formal British presence in the New World before the century was out. Getting back to the main line of our narrative, Captain Morgan recognized his place in the geopolitics of the time. He knew that disrupting Spanish gold shipments in the New World and seizing ports for England would keep him in the Crown's good graces, and that straying from that narrow charter might land his neck in a noose. Knowing how narrow his charter was, and how vast and unpredictable the open ocean is, led Morgan to quite properly conclude that only land-based targets would do. Compared to the daunting task of locating a Spanish galleon, heavy with gold on the open ocean, it was quite simple for Morgan to to identify where the land-based Spanish forts and cities were, and to collect intelligence regarding the strength of their defenses, and the morale of their people, and for him to position himself most advantageously for the attack. Contrast this with Captain Kidd's ocean-only approach. Kidd never attacked a land-based target, but rather roamed the open ocean from England to the Caribbean, and passed the Cape of Good Hope to the Indian Ocean, in search of a pirate ship, sailing under the skull and bones. Had Kidd followed Morgan's approach, he would have located the pirate's land-based hideout, gathered intelligence in advance of an attack, and only then would have carried out his attack with all of the vari- variables he could control in his favor. Reclaiming pirate treasure for the crown at a time and place of Kid's choosing would have ensured both a valid target and a higher probability of success. Furthermore it would have secured him favor with the king, rather than the pirate's trial he received. Because Kidd searched the vastness of the open ocean, rather than strike a fixed land-based target, his voyage went on for days, months, and even years without him finding the pirate ship he sought. With his crew mutinous, and his ship rotted away from exposure, his judgment became impaired. The compounding pressure of the fruitless search led him to capture the Koida merchant ship, and in so doing, to seal his own fate. Kidd's open-ocean versus land-based search strategy left him looking for the veritable needle in a haystack, and left him open to a hundred other variables that could still result in the loss of his fortune, even if he found the needle he was searching for. Assuming he chanced upon a pirate vessel, something unlikely in the vast open ocean of the world, his victory was still anything but assured. Could have been outgunned, or suffered an unfavorable wind, or simply been outsailed by the adversary, leading him to become not the pirate's captor, but their prisoner instead. A map of Morgan's travels, compared with that of Kidd, demonstrates their divergent approach at a single glance. Morgan knew where the money was and who controlled it, and he knew the best way to attack and seize it, while Kidd, left a thousand things to chance, hoping that by throwing a dart blindfolded, he'd hit the bullseye on the first attempt. Kid's search area included most of the world's major oceans, while Morgan's was narrowed in advance to just land-based, gold-rich Spanish settlements on the Caribbean Sea. Before either privateer set foot on his ship, the odds were already overwhelmingly in Morgan's favor. So how does all of this apply to investing? Well, Consider first that there are over 4,200 publicly traded companies in U.S. markets alone. My co-host and I research at least one company a week and sometimes a few more, but even at that pace, it would take us over 80 years to review each of the public companies individually. Assuming that only a handful of those companies offer investors the prospect of outsized returns, necessitates that investors have some filtering process in place to narrow the scope of their search. Decades ago, I narrowed my own search criteria down to just consumer monopolies with low-cost business models. This scaled my investing universe down from thousands of stocks to perhaps dozens and allowed me the time to thoroughly research the remaining companies on my list. In the end, I bet heavily on Starbucks, Monster Energy, Visa, and MasterCard and saw my investments thrive with that concentrated pool. As any listener of the podcast knows, my co-host and I have once again narrowed our search area to exchanges, brokers, and royalties due to their ability to perform in all market conditions coupled with their comparatively low valuations in today's market. We hope that, like Henry Morgan, we're narrowing the scope of our search to areas with the highest risk-reward characteristics, but only time will tell if we're correct in our judgment. One thing, however, is sure. And that is that a focused approach is the foundation of all great fortunes and that nobody ever became a billionaire by indexing. Our approach to finding value in public markets is not the only one and may not even be the correct one. But by having a narrow focused framework to hone in our search, our odds of success are undoubtedly improved. A generalist, buy-anything-and-look-anywhere approach is unlikely to outperform and may even lead to a disaster, while a focused approach offers at least a chance of a market-beating performance. Tolstoy opened Anna Karenina with a now-famous line, All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Torturing this quote to apply to the discussion at hand, all generalist portfolios perform alike while all-focused portfolios perform in their own way. Morgan's approach could have ended in failure, but offered a reasonable chance of wild success as well, while Kidd's approach offered almost no chance of outsized success and a reasonable probability of abject failure. A narrow search in a deeply undervalued section of the market offers the possibility of outperformance against what's sure to be an average outcome for the alternative approach. All right, with that, we hope you enjoyed episode 97 of the show. Again, uh, if you like the podcast, check out our special Situation Investing Substack page. A little bit more information there, plus some visual things to assist with the write-ups. If you're ever interested in reaching out and asking questions, we appreciate the feedback. As always, we appreciate any boosts on the Fountain app, and we will see you again with more actionable investing uh, write-ups next week.